0: Children are incredibly important to God. They may not be important so much in the world in which we live. And I'm talking about in the day in and day out of the way we function as a society or even as a church. But in the world in which we live, they're not important unless they represent tax dollars, unless you can make some money off of them. But they are very important to God.
1: Welcome to Mothering from the Heart, a program that seeks to reach out and encourage women in the everyday moments of life. Your teacher is pastor's wife, mother, and grandmother, Audrey Brogy. From a series entitled, Nobody is Perfect, Audrey today begins a message entitled, Me Last. 1 Corinthians 13 reminds us that love is not self-seeking, and 1 John 4 says that those who don't love don't know God. Love is sacrificial. It puts the needs of others before our own. And today, Audrey will touch on these things as she encourages women to overcome the call of 21st century narcissism and to put oneself last.
0: Women today seem to want to be first. We've been pushing against the glass ceiling for decades. We've been roaring for a long time. We've been putting ourselves out there in so many different ways. The motive, though, is always the same. We want to be noticed. We want to be recognized. We want to be heard. And technically, there's not anything wrong with that. But seldom do we want to be last. Seldom do we want to be unnoticed and unheard. But I'm really hoping to show you in these two messages or remind you in these two messages, the first today and the concluding one at the end of this month, That last really is best. That's what Jesus shows us in his word. And if you think about it, the glass ceiling that our country keeps talking about in terms of women, it doesn't exist anyway. Not in God's economy. The roaring that's taken has taken place by women for so many decades in this country is really obnoxious, at least in God's economy. Putting ourselves out there to be noticed, to be recognized, and heard the way we so often want to be and do is really not God's way. In his word, he gives us glimpses of his ways through several snapshots of the life that Jesus walked And we're going to walk through some of these in these next two times that we meet, not in any particular order, just the way my thoughts gathered and the principles that I know God wants us to understand and be reminded of. We're going to look at some things that he taught about this issue and how we can apply them in our lives as women. Now I want to say this, if you didn't bring a Bible, I want you to listen well and just write down every reference I give, and I will try to be very uh, plain about the reference and repeat it. Um, and, and that way you can go back and you can let these passages sink into your heart and sink into your life because the Word of God really needs to sink into us. We need to let His Word richly dwell within, her, within us. And here's the thing that I was reminded of even as, as I was preparing this message, these two messages, is that I really need to be more forthcoming and more forthright in encouraging you to bring a Bible to woman's life, because I don't ever say that. I think I, I just, it's just, I just forget to say that. Because here's the thing, what we do hear is always from the Bible. So sometimes I will teach a book of the Bible, as those who, you, of you who have been in woman's life for a long time, you know that we've taught through entire books of the Bible, always from the grid of how women should be doing that. But, and sometimes I teach topically, I teach from that list. Remember how I show you the file folders in terms of the list that, that the Apostle Paul, that God through the Apostle Paul gives us in Titus chapter 2? And so I will teach topically. I feel like it's incredibly important for, for us, especially as women, because God gives a, a list of topics that he wants us to cover as we teach and train women. But I will always, always, always teach from the Word of God. I will always let that be the jumping off part, the, the starting point, always. Because if I don't have his Word, if I don't teach from his Word, then I'm, I'm just sharing a bunch of opinions And I don't want to do that. I want you to see the principles from God's Word. Now, the first passage that we're going to look at today is found in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. And before I give you the particular verses, just let me set the context a little bit. Jesus had been leading his disciples. He's been teaching them, rebuking them. He's been healing people. He's been showing compassion, and they have been with him. The disciples, as we know, had left everything to follow him. And his heart, the the heart of the Lord Jesus really beat for them, to teach them and to train them and to prepare them for ministry, especially when he would depart. He wanted them to learn. And the things that he taught them, the way he rebuked him, the way he showed compassion for them, and the way he wanted them to learn— He wants the same thing for us today. He wants us to listen. He wants us to learn. He wants us to be rebuked. The passage that I'm going to give you picks up just after Jesus had healed a boy who had a demon. And before that, Jesus had healed a blind man at Bethsaida. He had taught many things, and Peter, James, and John had witnessed the transfiguration. After these things, Jesus leads his disciples to Capernaum, and on the way, this is what happens, and this is point one on your outline, Jesus, his disciples, and children. Now, I'm going to read this particular passage, and then I'm going to move through it a little bit slowly and and pull some things from it. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 37. From there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name, receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. And let's look at this passage just a little bit closer. Again, verses 30 and 31. And from there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he was unwilling for anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. Now, one of the most obvious things that we can see from these two verses is that Jesus took advantage of everyday moments to instruct and to teach and to train his disciples. As they were going, he was teaching. No wasted time. Just as they were doing what they did, as they were walking through, because Jesus always had a purpose in mind, and he always wanted his disciples to learn. He'd already told them about his coming death and his resurrection, and here he's telling them again. He is reminding them, and he does that over and over. Verse 32 says, But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. Matthew's account tells us that they were deeply grieved when they heard these things. However, they were not grieved enough to set aside their selfishness and their petty arguments, here Jesus is telling them something so serious. He's telling them about his own suffering and his own death and how how he will be killed. But instead of focusing on the words of Jesus and listening intently to what he is saying, they focus on themselves. Listen to verse 33 again. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? Now, Jesus is asking them what they were discussing, discussing, even though he knew what they were discussing. I love the way he asks questions, just like in the garden. Remember God when he questioned Adam and Eve, and he said, Are you? Who told you? Have you eaten? Adam and Eve hadn't really listened to the command of God, and neither Are the disciples really tuning in, really taking to heart, really listening to the words of Jesus? Though they hadn't listened very well to him, he had been listening to them. Verse 34 says, but they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. So they've been caught by Jesus in the pettiness of their own self-centeredness, of their own egos. And then an amazing thing happened. They keep silent. You know, they've been chattering away on the way, but now suddenly they're very quiet. You know, Jesus hadn't said anything about it on the way, but now that they're in the house, Jesus just candidly asked them what they were arguing about. What were they discussing on the road? And his pointed question open the way for additional teaching. And by the way, there's something here for us to learn as parents too, in terms of asking our children questions, even when we know what's going on, even when we hear them arguing, even when we, we might have even seen, what were you doing? Why were you doing that? Just ask them the question. Let them own those things. It helps in the learning process. So out of shame, we know, we can tell that that's that's why the disciples were quiet. Ashamed to admit that they had argued about who was the greatest among them. But the reason that they were concerned about this, probably, is because in that day, the most important was the most important thing. Whatever kind of position you had, whatever your rank was, whatever your status was in the community, was very, very important to the Jews. Of course, that's really the way it is today. Status, degrees, pedigree, what family you're from, what neighborhood you live in, all those things become very important to people. Where you buy your clothes, what name brand you're wearing, all that kind of stuff. So in that sense, it's kind of natural for the disciples to be concerned about their status in the coming kingdom, in the sense, natural in the sense that they're just limited people. They're sinful people. They're too concerned about temporal things, and they need time to grow in their understanding of what Jesus is trying to teach them. Now, a lot of people speculate that maybe they were jealous over the privileges that were given to Peter, James, and John, and maybe that's what started the argument. And we all know that jealousy starts many arguments, Scripture doesn't really record the details of their argument, but I've often wondered if they said things like, I must be the greatest because he called me first. Or, well, you know what? I witnessed the transfiguration, so I'm pretty special. I saw Elijah. I must be the greatest. I mean, these are just, again, speculations. I don't know. We know they were arguing. We know it was petty. Well, what about me? I found the boy with the five loaves and the two fish. But I I walked on water. Give it, you sank when you didn't trust anymore. (laughs) Today, it could be things like, you know what? I teach Bible studies. I have several entire books memorized. But I go to Bible studies, and I take plenty of notes. And did you go to the last one? Did you go to the greatest one? Did you go to the thus and so one? I go to church every week. I never miss. I tithe. In fact, I don't tithe. I give above the tithe. I have degrees, I've been to college, I've been to graduate school. I have my master's, well, I have my doctorate. I witness, in fact, I witnessed to three people last week. I take notes on all the sermons. I homeschool. Not only do I homeschool, but I do it a certain way. I do this, I do that. And you know, all of us, we can just insert whatever it is that makes us feel super holy and super spiritual. Surely, I must be the greatest. Surely, God sees me in a different light because I do so much for him. I'm better than the others. But Jesus doesn't measure greatness the way we do. Jesus is not impressed with our list of comparisons But whatever the cause of the disciples' arguments and whatever the details, Jesus wanted to teach them and help them grow and to renew their perspective, to help them see things differently. So verse 35 says, And sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Now notice here, (laughs) Jesus is not in a hurry to get to the next teaching session or to get to the next healing session or in a hurry to to meet the crowds. He's not in a hurry to meet the crowds. He's taking the time to teach his men. So first, he sits down. Sitting down was that recognized position of a Jewish teacher. And second, he called the 12 to him, kind of like, come here, guys. I mean, kind of like with my children over the years, when seeing what they're getting so involved in, this isn't really helping our life as a family. Guys, just come come here. Let's just come in the living room for a second. Everybody just sit down. You just need to listen to your mom for a second. We called the 12, and he said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. And then he begins teaching them about the essence of true greatness. He says, if anyone wants to be first, meaning if anyone wants to be great, if anyone wants to have a a position among the great in God's kingdom, he must be the very last, deliberately choosing, voluntarily choosing to be the very last and the servant of all. And then he taught them, even more as he used these words because the word servant Here means a person who meets the needs of others freely. Think of it, not just meeting the needs of other people, but does it freely, not under compulsion, like in when Paul instructs about giving. Not because you have to, but because you're giving willingly and freely. Not because he has to do it, not because he must do it, like a slave must take care of his master, like an employee has to meet the demands of his boss, but because he chooses to. So Jesus here is teaching that greatness in his kingdom is not determined by position or status or all these things that we so often measure it by. He says it's measured by serving. And if this teaching wasn't surprising enough, he then does something even more surprising. Verse 36, And taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, and you see what Jesus is doing here? He's taking a little child from the home. And he sets him before the disciples. And Jesus not only set this child before them, but he took this child in his arms. He doesn't even point. See that child over there? See that child in the next room? See that child that's been running around and everybody's been aggravated by this child? No, he takes that child and he puts him in his arms. He's doing something so significant. Because in those days, the only significant people were the adults. And that's kind of the way it is today, too. I mean, the Jews idolized mature adults. Jesus was doing something very significant and very against the grain of the culture. And then he said something that equaled what he did. Verse 37, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. So he's saying that to be the servant of all, you must give attention to a child. He doesn't just use the word servant in some nebulous way for the disciples to try to figure it out on on their own. He says, you have to welcome children. You have to receive children. You have to serve children. You must show kindness to children. And of course, if you continue to read the passage in its context, the next few verses, John quickly changes the subject. And he asks a question about casting out demons. Go read that later. He asks questions about casting out demons. Now, Jesus takes the time and answers John's question, but then he quickly turns the conversation back to children. In verse 42, he says, And whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if, with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. Now, I would encourage you to go read Matthew 18, 1 to 5. In fact, I will. I'll just read it. Because, again, it's very strong passage. For Matthew chapter 18. At that time the disciples came to Jesus, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and stood him in their midst and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy mill stone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes these are such strong words and it's very sobering because when you read these passages we know god god tells us that stumbling blocks are going to come to the least of these to the little children who are who are conceived in the womb, who are then born or aborted. And even as they grow up, there's going to be huge stumbling blocks. It's inevitable. But Jesus gave some very strong words when he said, woe to him through whom the stumbling block comes. I don't want to be a stumbling block to children. It's such strong words. The strength of the words show the value that God places on children. Yet even in our day, the day in which we live, there are plenty of people who are causing little ones to stumble. Jesus has just said how he feels about that. And there's a certain comfort in knowing that vengeance belongs to the Lord and that he will repay. And by the way, we're going to explore this area of stumbling blocks next time. But I don't want you to miss the point here. Children are incredibly important to God. They may not be important so much in the world in which we live. And I'm talking about in the day in and day out of the way we function as a society or even as a church. But in the world in which we live, they're not important unless they represent tax dollars. Unless you can make some money off of them. But they are very important to God. See, Jesus picked up this child because children were considered to be the lowliest of all human beings. It's easy to ignore them. But here, Jesus is equating welcoming children to welcoming him. So the corollary is true as well. To ignore them is to ignore Jesus. And think about this for a moment in terms of where we live and breathe. If Jesus himself was a child today, and if he were going to be in kid's life today, what would that be like? Or if he was going to be in our church nurseries, or if he was going to be in the class that you lead, or the class that you teach, or in the choir that you you give leadership to. If he's going to be running around in the halls, we probably wouldn't have. (laughs) But you get the point. If Jesus himself wanted to visit or play in some of the neighborhoods that have gone up in the day and age in which we live where children aren't really welcome, or in churches. Our society seems to be more and more intolerant of children, even Christians. Yet when you think about it, God chose—now think about this for a second. God chose the birthing and growing up process to bring about adulthood because something about that expresses who he is. I mean, Jesus came as a baby. I mean, this is the way God sent his son, born of a virgin. He was a little baby. He was a little toddler. He was a young child. He was an adolescent. He was a teenager. He grew up. Yet here in this passage, Jesus picked up this child. He set him before them, hugged him, equated greatness with receiving children. I think about it all. I really do. I think about this a lot. And I often wonder, why did Jesus equate greatness with welcoming children? Could it be because our attitude toward children reveals the intent of our hearts? See, here's the thing, children can't pay you back. I mean, we love our own, but somebody else's children? That's why Jesus picked up the child, set him before them, and held him in his arms. And wouldn't you just have... Love to have been that child. And of course, after this lesson on greatness in children, and after Jesus told the disciples how serious it was to cause a child who believes to stumble, the disciples fall flat on their faces. The very next day, Jesus was teaching in Judea beyond the Jordan, and crowds were gathering around him again like they always did. And according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. This is in Mark chapter 10, verses 2 to 12. Again, I'm going to read the passage and then make some observations. Mark chapter 10, verses 2 to 12, verse 2. And some Pharisees came up to him, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and the two shall become one flesh consequently they are no longer two but one flesh what therefore God has joined together let no man separate I mean there's the whole argument here in terms of the day and age in which we live about marriage there's a the whole argument right there verse 10 and in the house the disciples began questioning him about this again and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Now, what happens next is so important. It's so significant because right after his teaching on the permanency of marriage and what God had in mind for marriage, people began to bring their children to him. And what you see throughout Scripture is that Jesus wanted to protect women and children. Jesus, going all the way back to creation, was telling them the importance of family life. He says, you know, it's because of the hardness of heart that divorce was permitted. That wasn't something God wanted. It's because of sin. But I'm telling you, this is the way God wants it. Till death do you part. That's what he says here. What God joins together. I don't want anybody to separate. It's supposed to be a permanent union. And, the, and we all know that a permanent union between a husband and a wife brings security in a child's life.
1: For a copy of today's study, part one of Me Last, program WOM 119. Call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and request a CD or DVD copy. You can also listen online at searchthescriptures.org and look under the Mothering from the Heart section and through the Search the Scriptures app available on the iTunes Store and Google Play Store where you'll find all of Audrey's messages as well as those of her husband, Dr. Carl Brogy. And be sure to check out the various articles and posts on Audrey's website, motheringfromtheheart.org and don't forget to like the Mothering from the Heart Facebook page. Next week, Audrey continues her call to be last. Join us then. In the meantime, remember to always think biblically and mother from the heart.